We'll open it to the book of Luke. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning. As you turn there, let me remind us, as we have a, oh, this is week 3 of this series, we're, we're looking at the book of Luke and we're asking this single question each week, what would compel someone to follow Jesus? And what, would, what would get somebody to give up their life uh, and, and follow this man named Jesus who claims to be God? And so last week, we, um, we looked at who the ministry of Jesus is for, and we saw that it's for everyone. And so this morning we look at, okay, what is that ministry? What, what did Jesus come to do? And the answer to that is he came to forgive sinners. So with that, we'll be in verses 17 to 26 of chapter 5. Probably a familiar story to some of you. Uh, this is uh, chapter 5 of book of Luke, verse 17. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in. Jesus, or excuse me, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Probably a little more of a pause there, actually. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts... He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. We pray and ask God to teach us his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again uh, thank you for your promises to us. And now we ask that you would uh, continue with the promise of opening our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Give us your grace to transform hearts this morning, uh, that as a seed goes into good soil, such as the word would go out into those hearts, that they would produce a fruit, that we would leave here changed people. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Would you suppose something for a second? Uh, would you suppose that uh, you had somebody come up to you maybe after church and they had never, ever heard of or seen any of the Superman movies, okay? And uh, just bear with me for a second. So suppose that they had never seen any of these things and, and, and they came up to you and said, what did Superman come to do? It's probably not going to happen. They're probably, you're not going to get this question, but just hang with me, right? What, what, would, what, would you, what would you say? How would you answer that question? And, and I think that sort of in a general sense, we would just say, without getting into all the particulars at this point, Superman came to help people. Superman came to help people. They don't want you to suppose and then that person goes home and watches a Superman movie 
with their idea of what it means for somebody to help somebody. Right? And all of a sudden, they start to learn a little bit about Superman. They see him fly for the first time. Uh, they see him starting to stop trains and bullets and things like that. And they begin to realize, okay, Superman didn't come just to sort of help some people across the street. Right? He didn't come to help paint somebody's house. Right? That kind of help. Like He came to defeat the forces of evil or something, you know, like much grander scale. Okay. Well, I want to suggest that Jesus comes to us this morning in this particular account in the same way. That if you were to ask yourself or be asked, what did Jesus come to do? You could say that Jesus came to help people, right? And we've been seeing that, and we're going to look at that here in a second. Specifically in chapters 4 and 5 of Luke, we get these miracles that he's helping people. He is healing lepers, right? He is casting out demons. And we could even stop for a minute and think about um, how people would respond to the question uh, and even the answer that, that Jesus, yeah, he came to help. He came to show us how to live a better life, right? But the problem with that is when you actually look at this text that we just read, just as if you were to go watch Superman for the first time, you start to notice some things that Jesus is doing and saying that, that tell you that he has come to do more than help somebody across the street. That his idea of help and really what it should be for us, our need is greater than just being shown how to live a better life. And what Jesus has come to do by means of helping us is he has come to forgive us. That's what this story is about. The beauty of this count, y'all, is its simplicity. And I can be completely honest with you to say that I have done an amazing job this week of trying to complicate this. So don't, don't do that. And I hope that that doesn't come out this morning. Let's not complicate what Jesus has come to do for us. And especially what he's doing in this text. He has come to forgive sinners. And if we, if we begin to take what we looked at last week, both these sermons go together, these texts all flow together. He's coming to forgive you. Okay? And I want us to look at three things that are not on your bulletin if you're a note taker. The purpose of Jesus' miracles. We'll look at that first. And that kind of addresses how this story fits into all these other six accounts. I want to see how Jesus' forgiveness works. That's the second thing. And then why. Jesus's forgiveness works. Okay. So the purpose of Jesus's miracles, how Jesus's forgiveness works and why it works. So the first one, the purpose of Jesus's miracles, um, the purpose of the miracles in Luke is to give, and this is the most complicated we're going to get with this this morning is to give an external sign to an internal reality, to give an external sign a healing, if you will, something you see of an internal reality, something you cannot see. Many believe that Jesus performed miracles, and maybe this is what you grew up listening to or believing, just to sort of convince you that he is God, right? I'm going to go throughout the crowds and the streets, and I'm going to do some amazing things. I'm going to wow the crowd in order to get them to believe that I am who I say that I am. And many of us might even kind of think as we look through the narratives and we think about the Christian life, you know what, if I was there and I saw Jesus do these things, this would just be so much easier. 
Like, I would really believe that he is the son of God. I would, I would, I would want to do Christian things or whatever, whatever that would be. But I think the Bible forces us to ask, would we? Like, what, what would that demand belief? Many, many saw these things throughout Jesus' time and his age, as, as, and, and, and they still didn't believe. In fact, we're actually told in Scripture, um, in several places, that we have something more important than the miracles of God. We have, the, we have Moses and the prophets, right? We have God's Word. Because something bigger has to happen than just you seeing a miracle. A greater miracle, if you will, that we'll see here in a little bit. In fact, um, you know, as we as we see this, another objection to Jesus using his miracles to wow his viewers is the fact that they're not really as spectacular as you kind of think that they could be. And I'm thankful for uh, some of the work that um, Pastor Les Newsom has put into this text that I've been greatly helped for to point this out and what I'm going to call the blandness of Jesus' miracles, if you will. And, and this is part, again, this is part of seeing our text that we're about to get to, but in the whole here. What has Jesus been doing up to this point? And I want you to consider some of the things he's done. He has taken a demon-possessed man and he's removed that demon. That is cool. But that's all he's done. He's taken fishermen and he's allowed them to catch more fish. He's taken a leper, it's probably the best one so far, and he's cleansed that person of leprosy. It's great. And then now we get to this paralytic that we'll look at in a moment, and he allows the paralytic to walk. That is really cool. I'd like to see that. The, this is the kingdom so far, right? This is what's happening. These are the people that are following Jesus. But if Jesus is God, and let's use our imagination a bit, couldn't he have done so much more? Why not make these people rich in the process? Like, you're healed, and here are like 500 heads of camel, and here's this land. Like, let's really set these people up. I don't know where the leper went. I don't know where this paralytic goes after this. Why not give them a superpower and, like, let them fly? Then they'd really be disciples, right? Like, who gave you that power? Jesus did. Go believe in him. He doesn't do that. You use your imagination here a little bit. Why not bring back to life past family members who had died? That would have been substantial. That would have, that, that would have really have sealed the deal. Jesus could have done more when we begin to look at this. And this is why it's important to sort of note the blandness of these miracles. And we say this because if his purpose was just to wow you, then yes, Jesus could have done more. But that's not his purpose. His purpose is to show you that he is God, but specifically what God has come to do and what type of kingdom God is bringing. In other words, miracles give us an external sign that communicates an internal reality. Okay? And one of those realities, as we touched on last week, is that Jesus is bringing outsiders into the kingdom. Go back and look at that list again. Right? Demon-possessed men or people. Uneducated fishermen. Lepers. Who are the untouchables, right? We could spend a whole sermon on them. Like, they are literally cast out. The lame. 
those who would be left and didn't fit into the social structures of our society. After this, he calls a tax collector. Is there somebody more hated in this day and age than the tax collector? What, what is he doing with these people? Why is he showing these miracles? He is bringing them in to his kingdom. The external reality of them being an outsider and then performing this miracle brings them into the kingdom physically. But it's the internal aspect that he's pointing to that we see so clear in our text this morning of the forgiveness of sins. He is setting you up to show you that this isn't just about Miracles to wow people. This is about something that I'm claiming to do that you need more than anything else. Something that resides inside of you. That's what we get from Jesus. People often ask, why didn't Jesus just heal everybody? And that's a good question. It's a good observation. And we can answer it in the same way. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to show you something infinitely more than any physical ailment. That you have actually a spiritual sickness. And Jesus will tell the Pharisees at the end of this chapter, those who are well have no need of a physician. He doesn't mean physically well, does he? And we know that. He is using it to point to an invisible, internal reality that in our story that we are now about to get to, he is claiming he has the authority to fix, to forgive you of what is far worse than leprosy, far worse than being paralyzed, Far worse than having some type of possession or even far worse than being a tax collector. And we could add far worse than being an Alabama or Georgia fan if you want to go back to two Mondays ago. right? Like there is something far worse than those things. There is a spiritual reality to this. And he has come to announce his deliverance of this. And that's why the purpose of these miracles is to begin to show you externally What's about to happen to you internally. And also I might add that you can believe that this is true. And this is setting up this entire story. So let's go ahead and get there. Instead of just talking about what we're going to talk about. Let's move to that second point. Right? How does Jesus' forgiveness work? And as as we get in here, what we begin to see is that Jesus' forgiveness works by faith alone. Okay? Here's, what's ha- here's what happens in this story. Let me just recap this for us. Jesus' teaching. The crowds have gathered because his ministry has gained some popularity. And, and somewhere in the midst of his teaching, there's some men who have brought this paralyzed person to him. And they're, con- they're intent on getting him to Jesus. All right, put yourself in there somewhere. Put yourself in there trying to listen. <laughs> And at some point they realize there's no way that we're getting this guy anywhere close to Jesus. And so somehow they decide to, right, create another plan, which is we're just, we're going to do whatever it takes to get him before Jesus. Because we know what he can do for this man. And so they take him up on the roof, take apart the roof. I'm not sure. I'm just imagining, you know, there's stuff dropping from the ceiling. Right, you're taking notes and now you're frustrated because the note taking stopped because Jesus has stopped because he's trying to figure out what's going on with the roof. They bring in this man who is paralyzed. You've probably passed by him on the streets a hundred times in your lifetime at this point if you lived in this town. And you're just sort of wondering, how rude? Like, what's the point of this? And then Jesus does sort of the unthinkable. This is where you see, you know, Superman, you see that he can fly, that he can stop trains, that there's something more going on here than Jesus has led on. He looks at their faith 
And he says, your sins are forgiven. It's the first time in Luke that we've seen anything like this. There's been no record at this point of Jesus and his ministry for Luke as he's put this together. Of him actually proclaiming the forgiveness of sins in this way. Now here's what we don't know from Luke. Which is probably what we're all dying to, to figure out. We don't know who these helpers are who brought the paralytic to Jesus. We don't know exactly whose faith Jesus is referring to when he says their faith. Presumably it's all of them. We don't know anything really about the paralytic and who he thought Jesus was. So many questions here. But Luke, I believe, wants it to be that way for now. And I want you to take your eyes off of those questions for a little bit and come back to what Luke seems to be more interested in. Not the, particular hour, not the particulars of faith at this time and those who would believe. But the system of authority that is all gathered around watching this about the cry blasphemy. See, in this text, we get introduced to a new group of people. And they are very influential. Not many, but they're very influential. They're called Pharisees. We've heard about them. We talk about them. And if you notice, this whole story starts out not about the crowds per se that have gathered, but about the Pharisees who've come from all over to gather. See, they've heard about this man so far. They've heard about what he's doing. And there's a sense that their sort of reputation is being threatened maybe. And so they're coming in to, to spy on this, but to look at it. They're all there. Luke, Luke is so intentional about making that detail known. Here they are. And they're gathered around and they're watching this. And Pharisees, like I said, they weren't a large group. but They were influential spiritual leaders who believed that for God to come and do what Isaiah had had said that he was going to do. That that, that to speed that up or to make that happen, we needed to have more strict conformity to the law. We got to get back to the law. Obedience was the way. But this has many flaws. See, Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, the Pharisees took their religion very seriously. They were so anxious not to break God's commandments that they put a fence about the law. For example, when the law said, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, they made sure they did not break it by refusing to pronounce the name at all. The hedge around all provisions of the law, i.e. traditions of the elders or traditions of men had the unfortunate result of externalizing religion. This is, this is what Luke is honing in on, but this is what Jesus then is directed. To, this is what his, all, all the rest of the story is directed towards is abolishing this false gospel. Therefore, forgiveness for Pharisees became a matter of external cleanliness. If if you're doing A, B, and C, that's good. Keep it up. And see, where miracles were an external sign of an internal reality, Pharisees had external signs of internal hollowness. And Jesus would go on to call it that by saying that they are whitewashed tombs, but they are dead in the middle. They're dead inside. And this is the result of externalizing religion. I really like that phrase. When our faith is about behavior or behavioral change and not heart change, we have engaged into externalizing religion, externalizing the gospel. But here's a bit of intentional irony in this story from Luke, I believe. Here is a group watching Jesus who is all about externalizing religion, being externally clean or right with God. And what if you can't achieve this type of external cleanliness? 
In other words, who's this for? And it's, there's, there's some humor here too, that it's in the midst of that thought that in drops the paralytic before Jesus. And this really gets to the, to the problem that the paralytic presents. Because what happens when a paralytic shows up at Jesus' house and is lowered down through the roof and is pronounced clean, forgiven of sins, and has done nothing to earn that in the audience's eyes? Well, that's a problem if strict obedience is the answer. Consider some of the problems this paralytic presents briefly. First of all, he's unclean. Just like the leper. The paralytic comes to Jesus much like the leper would, either because of his condition or where his condition found him, probably often sleeping on dirt floors or in the streets even. And see, we've got to imagine a a less squeaky clean society when it comes to people like this, right? Um, we, We might imagine that someone like this would have a warm home to live in or sort of ADA accommodations, but such was not the case in this day and age. Most people in this state were left homeless, unable to provide for themselves, especially if family wouldn't. Simply put, there wasn't, excuse me, there wasn't just a place for, there wasn't a place for them in society, excuse me. And that systematic failure, and you've got to begin to see this through this lens, to take care of people causes them to fall into other, more obvious areas of unacceptability, both socially and spiritually. This is what it means to be unclean outsiders. Jesus is about, in a couple of chapters, to go invite a prostitute. He's not inviting a prostitute, excuse me. A prostitute comes and finds him. and starts washing his feet with her tears, right? He's at the dinner table of a Pharisee. And what is the Pharisee's response to that? Like, if you knew who this was, this unclean woman who's touching you, right, you would send her out. The same thing going on here. There is a a bit of taboo here as this person is being lowered down because this person is unclean. The second thing I want you to notice, the problem that this paralytic presents, is that he is 100% dependent upon others. He cannot walk. This is intentional. Which means he can't work. He can't tithe. He can't go to the temple unless someone brings him. And maybe someone did. But the lifestyle that the Pharisees promote, and this is what Luke is, is hammering at, as pleasing to God, moves this man to the margins immediately. He just can't do it. And in this way, the type of religiosity the Pharisees represent is an extremely exclusive kind. In other words, it is the traditions of men, Pharisaic law, that are actually excluding God's people and not including God's people. And this is one of the reasons Jesus has such little patience for them in the Gospels. So you could understand the reaction as well, the Pharisees watching when Jesus pronounced this man clean and forgiven. How can this be? He hasn't done these things. He's unclean. He's filthy. More importantly, he's never going to be able to. But thankfully, Jesus' forgiveness is not exclusive. It is inclusive. It's an amber alert. I think it's all going off on our phones right now. San Antonio, Texas. Um, 
Jesus' forgiveness is inclusive. It's not exclusive. It's for people like the paralytic too. And what the paralytic shows us so clearly, this comes back to the whole point here, which is a problem for the Pharisees. And you've got to get this, is that external cleanliness, friends, obedience, if you will, is not the requirement for entry into Jesus' kingdom. This is the point of sticking this, this story in about six or seven accounts of Jesus bringing outsiders in. Obedience is not the requirement for entry into this kingdom, a kingdom full of externally unclean people like us. The requirement is faith that Jesus can what, friends, make you clean. And how is one made clean? How is one forgiven? Well, this text says it by faith. And that's the part that we're not going to complicate this point we'll get to that later on but this is how it happens jesus is not in the business of externalizing religion which is what is so compelling about him at this point in order to come to jesus and be forgiven you don't have to have your life all together you don't have to clean yourself up if we could even do that to receive what he has come to offer forgiveness it is actually the opposite we are learning right now that we have to Go to Jesus in order to be made clean. And here's the kicker. I love that phrase. That never stops. You don't stop going to Jesus for this in one sense. That's not not a proclamation that says you have to keep saying the sinner's prayer over and over. That's not what I mean. But we never stop going to Jesus in order to be found acceptable is what I mean. Like, we don't ask for his forgiveness. We don't ask for his forgiveness and then go take it from there and try to live this life that is pleasing to him and acceptable. And hopefully at that point, it kind of graduated to different, uh, different places and different, different ranks within the church and in spirituality and acceptability. No, 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 no. Your life, for the rest of your life, is a, is a constant motion of returning to him for that acceptability. We'll get into that more with application at the end here. But again, I want to pull this back to how Jesus' forgiveness works. It works by faith alone. Um, one, of the, one of the questions you can ask yourself before we move on, you know, and I think this, is, this can be touchy at times, but uh, to understand if this is something that, 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 that this is the way that you view Christianity, I think is to ask yourself, are you experiencing joy as you follow Jesus, right? And, and, and many of us would say, you know, sometimes in my life, maybe. Some of us may say we wouldn't. And oftentimes the places where we say we wouldn't is because we are so bound up into a, in a particular sin. And I understand that. I completely understand that. But one of the things that I've, that's been pointed out to me that I want to share with you is that oftentimes the reason we aren't experiencing joy in the midst of besetting sins, for example, in the midst of, of trying to fix this area of our lives is because we are looking to ourselves to fix it. And this is where the simplicity of this text comes back to me so much. Jesus has come here to forgive you. Stop trying to fix yourself. And in that forgiveness is where your joy will be found. Right? There's a whole other sermon left for what does that look like as we move into the world as forgiven people. Right? That's not a license to sin. I can just let me stop that conversation real quick. But in all seriousness, your lack of joy, my lack of joy, oftentimes it, 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 as it pertains to sins that we haven't killed or we haven't you know, stopped is because we are looking to the wrong person to forgive us of those things. We're looking to ourselves. 
Don't miss what Jesus has come to do. It's an offering. He's come to forgive you. Okay, this is how Jesus' forgiveness works. It's by faith alone. And lastly, why Jesus' forgiveness works. Um, Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' forgiveness works because he alone has the authority to forgive. A lot of big concepts in this text. What's interesting to me about this story, and you might have noticed this too, is that Jesus doesn't heal this man first, right? He forgives this man's sins first. Why? And it has everything to do with the dialogue that he's having with the Pharisees. He does it as proof that Jesus can do what he came to do, which is forgive sinners. This is what you and I must walk away with this this morning. Two-thirds of the passage focuses on Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees after Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. For now, it's clear that this is the focus for Luke. Not the particulars of faith exhibited in the paralytic and the men who brought him, but on the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They say, and the Pharisees are actually right here. Like they get half of this right. God is the only one who can forgive sins. But where they are wrong here is their assessment of Jesus as the son of God, that in him there is no partial salvation. Jesus has come not to address external uncleanliness as we've defined already. He has come to proclaim good news as we saw last week to the poor, the prisoner, the blind and the oppressed. And here we see the extent of that good news finally that their internal uncleanliness, what they could never touch with 10,000 sacrifices, their sin is now forgiven. In other words, they are clean before God where it matters the most. Their sins are no more. But how do you know this, right? right? How do you know for sure at this point of healing a paralytic physically, can't, you know, that's, that, that's the point of healing the paralytic physically because anybody can look at you and say, I absolve you of your sins. Anybody can come in and claim they have authority to say, look, I'm, I'm the son of God. I can do these things. And Jesus knows this, and this is exactly why he says to them, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately... One of the most important words in this whole story. He rose up. There wasn't a pause. There wasn't a hesitation. Right? There wasn't a, hmm, was this, that was kind of a funny, what just happened there? They just switched the bodies. Immediately, friends. And, and, and don't miss the, the parallel. As quick as this man gets up and goes home, is as quick that you know too that you are forgiven for those who ask for forgiveness for Jesus. This is part of the, the, this is sort of the metaphor within the story of what it's pointing to. Jesus forgives, Jesus' forgiveness works because he alone has the authority to forgive as the son of God. That's what he's saying. And that's what he's demonstrating by getting this paralytic to get up and walk. You know what I also found compelling in this text as I've read it and heard it over a hundred times is what Jesus actually does in this text with the power and the authority that he has. You know, he doesn't shame this man as he comes through and interrupts his teaching, right? He doesn't look at this man as he comes through the ceiling and kind of looks at him in disgust and, oh, right? He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't ask for a bona fide declaration of faith, which I know all of us in here are itching for, right? What did he, did he, did he say that he believes in Jesus? What is, what, what's that faith? He doesn't, we don't get any of that. We don't, Jesus doesn't ask for any spiritual credentials here. I'm not saying that some aren't required. It's not where I'm going with that. Don't overcomplicate this. 
But Jesus also doesn't demand certain behavioral or obedience practices to demonstrate his commitment and zeal for Jesus. Instead, Jesus sees his faith and his forgiveness. And what does he do with his power and his authority to do that? He forgives him. It's beautiful. And what draws me to Jesus at this point is what he does with his power and authority to secure your forgiveness. He uses it not to save himself, not to move himself into more comfortable um, accommodations or to give himself wealth and pleasures. He uses his power and authority to lay his life down for us sinners so that we might be forgiven and know the depths of his love for us. He is the good shepherd, as John will talk about who lays his life down for his sheep. And that's why his forgiveness actually works. Because he lays his life down as a down payment to secure your forgiveness. There is no more barrier, friends. May the paralytic be the greatest example of this to us. There's no no more barrier for us to bring ourselves to Jesus, to be made clean, to be made whole again, to be spiritual outsiders, if you will. That, be, that, that are then brought in to be a part of God's family. That is a transformation of cosmic proportions. So we've seen three things here. Uh, what is uh, what, what the purpose of miracles? How Jesus' forgiveness works? And why Jesus' forgiveness works? And I want to leave us a little bit of application. I know we're, all, we're going a little bit long here. Um, sort of a what do we do here? And I think this is a great opportunity as we've sort of daydreamed and discussed a little bit about, you know, we're celebrating 25 years at this church. Um, it's a new year. That's a reason enough, right? Let's you know, not make this resolution, but um, we're in a new year, a new start, a lot of new things happening. Um, let's have some more self-diagnosis or self-examination you know, and let's, let's think about who we want to be as a church and a church body. And I think this text gives us three things for us to consider, certainly to take in the small groups later on, that I just want to leave you with. And those three things are to be people who repent, declare, and bring. Okay? Repent, declare, and bring. This isn't a whole new sermon. Promise. Where are you in this story? All right? The Pharisee, the paralytic, or the helpers? See, the We've got to visit each, each three of these. The, the Pharisee, how or where are you externally religious? We call this self-righteousness, I'm made right by what I'm doing. But another way to get this question that I found really helpful is what brings you virtue in your day-to-day life? And another way to what, what that means is what brings you worth, brings you dignity. For the Pharisees, what brought them virtue and worth, worth was keeping their own laws. They're made up laws. And that's what self-righteousness really is. It's keeping your made up laws that are your own source of dignity. What are your made up laws, friends, that bring you virtue on a day-to-day basis? And just a spattering of those that I can claim for myself. Is it how you parent that really just makes you feel like you're worth it, worth something? Is it where or how your kids are educated? That you're doing it right. How much money you make? Huge. What causes, your, what causes you champion or fight for? Your political convictions, your sexual purity, your grades, your athletics, your relationships, reputation, and what others think of you, the list can go on. Right? What is it that brings you virtue and worth? Because here's the bit. The Pharisees in this text do not need Jesus to enter every area of their lives. 
This is the crime of the whole passage. They only need Jesus to enter the areas they haven't externally fixed yet. And the same is true for us in the areas we find our worth and our value and our virtue in. We will always need Jesus to enter into our parenting. We will always need Jesus to enter into how and why and where we school our kids. We will always need Jesus to enter into whatever it is that's on that list that rings true for you. The areas of your life that you find virtue, that you find worth, that you feel like I am doing it right. Those are the areas where you need Jesus the most. And should we never get to a place where we are not repenting of those things and asking Jesus to come in new afresh to remind us of our need for him. And this moves us over to the paralytic. And it's kind of this song and dance, right? Where, where we begin to see ourselves as this person in need. Is that you this morning? Complete dependence. And perhaps not physically, but spiritually is the picture here. It's the external reality to the internal or the external sign to the internal reality. I'm a spiritual paralytic. Like I require 100% dependence upon the grace of God to come in and fix and change me. Is that you? Can you say that that's you? And then there's the helpers, which I think are great for us to look at and think about. How are you bringing people to Jesus in your circles? How are you giving people Jesus? People need a lot of things in this world. But what Jesus is clearly showing us what they need more than anything else, what he has come to do, right, is they need forgiveness. How are, you, how are you giving them less of yourself and more of Jesus is a question I have to ask myself all the time. I'll go first, right? How am I removing myself as the solution to people's problems or the recommendation of certain things to fix people when what these people need are Jesus, right? And, and, and this is not to discount the physical needs here, right? We have to be careful not to ignore like, the felt needs that people need to, to have us enter into. But oftentimes our ministry of meeting physical needs, of meeting felt needs, of showing that, that, that Scripture cares about the wholeness of you is where people see more clearly what Jesus has actually come to do for them spiritually. Where you begin to become that living metaphor, such as is coming, which is happening right before our eyes, as a paralyzed man comes through the roof to be forgiven of his sins. How are you doing that for people? How are you bringing people Jesus in your life. Repent, declare your need, bring the Pharisee, the paralytic, the helpers. Where do you find yourself? And here's the goal. The goal is not to find yourself in one of these places, friends. The goal is for us as a church to find ourselves in all these places all the time, that we would be a people of great repentance, that we'd be a people with a posture of need, dependent 100% on the grace of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that through that and out of that would, be, would bring forth a ministry of bringing people at whatever cost it is to ourselves to the feet of Jesus. And why? Because this is what he came to do. He came to forgive us. He has come to help people. I think a good question for us is, do we need, do you need this kind of help? Consider that an invitation for sure. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, 
hopefully for the simplicity of what's going on here, of what you've come to do. You've come to forgive us. Um, And there are so many ways to dress that up. There are so many ways to complicate it, to make it murky. And this story cuts right through that, and it gives us these angles to see all the barriers we put in front of our own forgiveness, of our own freedom, our own joy in you, but also the barriers we put in other in front of others of our traditions. I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us to be people who repent constantly and declare our need continuously, that we, in fact, need what Jesus has come to do to forgive us of our sins, and that would send us into this world as new people, changed people, your church, to bring that news to the many, to the multitudes. And to do that in ways that would use words, but also wouldn't use words. That would do that in ways that show and demonstrate your care and love for all your people. Would you do a work in us through that? We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.